0: So this morning we're going to go ahead and end our series in the book of Colossians. We've made it through. We're going to finish up chapter 3 today and then we're going to get through chapter 4 as well. And if you recall, last week was that, you know... Paul was dealing with the, the pagan religion of the times basically had nothing to do with morality. The pagan religion of the time, they didn't care how you acted, they didn't care how you behaved. You could go to the altar, you could sacrifice, you could do your whole thing, honor your God, and then leave and and live however you wanted to live. There was no change in that person's life with all the religions of those days. But Paul was teaching something different. He said, you know what, Christianity is a little bit different. When, when God gets a hold of you, when you get a new life inside of you, when you are made brand new, when you're born again, there should be a change. And it should dictate how you live your life. If you really are born again, you shouldn't look the same as you used to because the old man is dead and gone, and behold, new things have come. You are brand new. And if you're brand new, you should look a little different, amen? And we were talking last week, right? We see that all the time. People with the same attitude, even Christians with the same attitude, they come to church on, on Easter Sunday. And they come to church on, on Christmas and that's all that they do. That's the only time they come to church. And, and, and Christianity has no impact in their life at all. Other than they, they can hit their little check mark. I, I went to church twice this year, so I guess I'm pretty good. But Paul's saying, you know what, Christian, Christianity is not like that. Christianity is more than about words, but it's about action. It's about a, a life that has changed. And this week he's going to continue on. He's going to continue going on into to what it looks like to live as a Christian. He has instructions for the Christian on how to, to live their lives. And this one's going to be a good, good one. You guys are going to love it, I can tell, because he talks about how husbands are supposed to treat their wives and how wives are supposed to treat their husbands, and how kids are supposed to treat their parents, and how parents are supposed to treat their kids. And then if you're not married, you don't have kids, and you think you're still golden. Then he goes on to say, "Well, we're also going to talk about how employers should treat their employees, and how employees should treat their employers. And we're going to get all, all kinds of great instruction this morning. And then finally, Paul's going to end, as he, as he normally does with his letters, he greets everybody and encourages us to pray. But this is a, there's some powerful stuff that we're going to get into right now. And I won't spend too much time talking about it because we've got a lot to get through and not a whole lot of time. Somebody talked about announcements way too long and took all the pastor's time to preach. So I don't know who that was. In Colossians 3.18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. How many of you wives, this is your guys' favorite verse? You know, this is a parallel. I was t- talking to Joseph this morning as I was reading this. I realized this is almost an exact parallel to the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, he, he's actually a little bit more in depth. And In Ephesians five twenty-two through 24, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, we're going we're gonna to break this down. We're going to talk about a few things. First, we need to understand that it says wives submit to your husbands. In Ephesians, it says wives submit to your own husbands. This, this doesn't mean, and unfortunately some, some men have misconstrued this to mean, is that all women have to submit to every man. That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says wives submit to your husbands. So that means that my wife doesn't have to submit to any other man on this planet but me as her husband. And the problem that women have with this structure, or this, this, this verse, is we're like, wait a minute, why do I have to submit to, my, to, to somebody else? Why, well, what makes him better than me? How come, how come my husband's better than me? And the truth is, nowhere in the Scripture does it say that, that men are, are better than women. Matter of fact, over and over and over in the Scripture, it says that God is, shows no partiality. And in many places, it says there's no difference between men and women. In the same place, it said there's no difference between, between Gentile and Greek, or, or Jew, Gentile and Jew, and there's no difference between, between man and woman. There's no difference between rich and poor. God shows no partiality. There's, there's nothing inherent in the man that makes him better than a woman. Oh, man, I thought every woman in the place would be like, Amen, when I said that. There we go. There's nothing better in, in man than woman. But what God is, is He's a God of order, He's a God of, of structure. And the truth is that there has to be some sort of order. Otherwise, you have too many cooks in the kitchen. Somebody's got to, to make the final decision. It's the reason why the that, that churches are led by a pastor and not by a, a, a board. Because there has to be some sort of structure. In 1 Corinthians 14.33 it says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, you know I've been involved in so many places where you have stuff run by committee and nothing ever gets done, and 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 there's just a mess. People are fighting and people are arguing, and the truth is, is that that God doesn't want that. God wants His body and His families to run like a well-oiled machine, because that's how we can be effective in the body of Christ. Amen. But then there's another their key part here that says, as is fitting in the Lord. In Ephesians it says, as to the Lord. That's how a wife is supposed to submit to her husband. As to the Lord, or as is fitting in the Lord. So, so we can get a picture of what this actually looks like when it's talking about submission. And if we take a look at how we're supposed to submit to Christ, it says, as is fitting in the Lord. So, so why, do, why do we submit to Jesus? One, we submit because we fully trust Him. We can submit to Jesus because we know we can lay our lives in his hands. And if he asks us to do something, we know it's not because he's on some power trip, but it's because he loves us, and there's a reason for what he's asking us to do. So we submit to him because we fully and 100% trust him. And the reality is, is as husbands, that's the kind of relationship we should have with our wives. They should have they should never feel worried about submitting to, to something that we've said. They should never, they should never be be unsure of what's going on. They should be able to trust us with our lives, with their lives. And everything that we do for them, and we'll get to that in a second, is is it should be to because we love them, willing to give up our life even for them. Now here's the hard part though, is there's some husbands that aren't godly husbands. They're not living the life that they should. So now we run into the question, well. If they're not godly men, does that mean I still need to submit to them? But the reality is, is it doesn't say wives submit to your husbands as long as they're godly men. It says submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And actually you're going to see as we go through these, all these, there's no condition on them. The the condition is on our own hearts, not on the person that we're dealing with. When you're an employee, you don't, you don't submit to your bosses because they're good bosses. You do it because you're doing it as unto the Lord. And the same thing with wives. You submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean stay there and be abused. It doesn't mean stay there and be a doormat. It doesn't mean that a husband can take advantage of their wives. That's absolutely not what it means. It doesn't mean that they should not have the right to be safe. And the reality is is that wives, you're in a partnership with your husband. That means your opinion counts. You have a foolish husband if he doesn't listen to anything that you say. You're in a partnership. But the reality is is that a, a, a wife should submit to her husband just as, as the body of Christ submits to Christ, who is the head? And the truth is, is that Christ doesn't ever ask us to do anything that we're not capable of. He doesn't ever ask us to do anything that would put us in danger. He doesn't ever ask us to do anything like that. For we are His bride and He loves us with everything. As a matter of fact, He came and He died for us. Amen? Then it goes on to say, Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The parallel in Ephesians, in Ephesians five twenty-five 25-30 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. And he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. You know, the truth is, as a husband, you have a responsibility. Matter of fact, in this situation, you are held to a much higher standard than your wife, because you have a responsibility to lead your wife well, to lead your family well. And it's fun to make jokes about submissions oh, as we like to play around and tell our wives they have to submit. And it's fun to make jokes, but there's a reality to it is, is that we have a responsibility for them. And we have accountability to them as well. We have accountability to our wives to be godly men. And the truth is is we're going to give an account one day on how we behaved as husbands. We're going to have to give an account to that because we do have a responsibility and we need to, to love our wives not just in words but in deeds as well. We should be showing it every day. Christ didn't say that he didn't just say that he loved the church, but he gave his life for the church. He gave everything. As a husband, we need to love our wives the same way. Well, the same way, love them with everything that we have. That we'd be willing to give anything for them. That we would cherish them with all we have. We would show them every day. All of Christ's work for us was because he loved us. And as husbands, everything we should do for our wives should be because we love them. And the measure that we are, are going against is the measure of how much Christ loved the church. Which means basically immeasurable. You don't stop. You keep going. And the truth is, is that, God, that, that God's love, that Christ's love for the church had an impact on the church. He gave his life. And because of that, we were made brand new. We, we, we were raised up in newness of life. It should have an impact. And that means the love that we have for our wives should have an impact as well. It should make a difference in their lives. It should make their lives easier. It should lift them up and build them up. We need to be praying for our wives and washing them in the word. And we need to, to be, be walking alongside them and supporting them and working with them. I tell you what, as a husband, if you're, if your wife is usually more in tune with the spiritual stuff than you are. That's just a, a, as a general rule, that's kind of how it works. So if your wife says something, it would do you well to listen because you might get yourself in all kinds of trouble if you want to ignore what your wife has to say in a situation. And then the truth is that a healthy person doesn't ever harm their own body. Christ didn't harm the church. And the scripture says to love your wife even as your own flesh. And if you wouldn't hurt yourself, don't ever do anything to hurt your wife. Ever. The truth is, is that with your own body, you are hardwired. Did you know you're hardwired to protect your own body? I read once that it only takes something like a pound and a half of pressure to bite your finger off. It's it's like almost no pressure. It's like it's as easy as biting through a carrot, biting through somebody's finger. But you can't do it to yourself. Your brain won't even let you do it. You can bite as hard as you can. You'll never bite through your finger because your brain won't even let you do it. We're hardwired to protect our own body. And that's the way we should be wired to protect our wives as well. It should be impossible for us to hurt them. But instead, everything that we should do should be lifting up to them. And the reality is, is when we love and cherish our wives, we're actually doing so to ourselves as well. Because the scripture says that, that, that when we come together as husband and wife, we become one flesh. We are one, one unit. Amen? Now on to you kids. It says, children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Do you know that for children to obey their parents is a commandment of God? That's a commandment. So when 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 your parents tell you to do something, it's pretty much like God telling you to do it. Because he said obey your parents. (laughs) The the reality is is that that it's fitting for for children to obey their parents because, let's face it, your parents have done a whole lot of stuff for you. One, it starts with a mom bearing unbearable pain to pop you out into this world. And that should be enough right there. I mean, seriously, you began your life hurting your mother, causing her pain. Oh, and sometimes it feels like it doesn't stop. Just like, seriously. And not only that, they provide food, they provide shelter, they make sure you have the clothes on your back. None of you guys showed up to church in your skivvies today. You guys all had clothes because they were taking care of you. You guys have a place to live, you guys have food. And as a result of that, I mean, how can you, when someone takes that kind of care of you, how could you not be respectful and be honoring of them? But on top of that, this is the first commandment of God with a promise. In Exodus 20, 12, it says, if you will obey your parents, then it will go well with you living in the land. The scripture says, if you will obey your parents, this is the, the first commandment with a promise, that you would, your way will go well with you in the land. That means that if you obey your parents, you're going to be taken care of. That gives you a, a better start on life if you will obey your parents. And the truth is, everything your parents do for you is for your own benefit. We were just hearing in the conference when he was, he was talking about uh, uh, with your children, when you, when, you, when you speak to them, you expect them to listen right away. And as they get older, you begin to explain a little more. But if you have a little kid... And they're running out into a street, and you yell, stop. You expect them to stop right then to obey. And it's not because you're like, man, I hate it when my kid runs and plays and has fun. But it's because they're running into the street, and they might get hit by a car. And the same thing about it is that all your parents' instructions are like that. Even though sometimes, I mean, sometimes it feels like your mom, just they just want to take the fun out of your life, doesn't it? I know, I know that's how my kids feel Sometimes. You know, And it's like, I I wish they understood. I wish they understood my heart. I wish they could step in for just a second and know that the reason why they can't do this thing is because I love them with everything they have and I want the best for them and I don't want them to be in a situation that's going to cause them problems. As my girls have gotten older and they're getting into the the teenage years and all of a sudden boys are are desirable, which I'll never get, But we begin to set up rules and say, "Hey, you know there's certain things that can't happen you you can't be alone with a boy ever ever. ever. <laughs> we have a rule in our house you can't date till you're married, and uh yeah." <laughs> 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 But yeah, we, the, the reality is, is, we put these things in place to protect our children. Not, it's not because we don't want them to find the love of their life, it's because we don't want them to do something stupid. Because all of us do stupid stuff, but kids really, you guys do the dumb stuff sometimes. I know, and I did dumb stuff. But the reality is, is that our parents are there to protect us. They want to keep us safe. So when, you're, when your parents are giving you these instructions, it's because they love you. And it's because they have the best thing for you. And they want you to do the best in life. And most of the time, I'll be honest with you guys, most of the time we tell you not to do something. is because we did something that was just like that. And it caused us all kinds of pain. It caused us, caused us all kinds of hardship on our life. And we just want you to not have to go through the very same things that we went through. It's because we love you. But then it goes on to the parents. So you guys, your parents were like, preach it, Pastor Wayne. Get them to listen. Get them to obey. But then it goes on and says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That means that as parents, we have a responsibility as well. We have a responsibility to raise our children in a godly manner. And we, we have a responsibility to not do things in such a way that just pokes and prods our children. If you are giving your child an instruction, it needs to be for their benefit, not just because which is hard sometimes because sometimes you just want to just because them. And I found that there has been times in, in my life when, when they'll ask me something and, and uh, you know, can I stay the night somewhere? And you're like, no, not tonight. And then you begin to think about it and you're like, well, I don't really have a reason for that. I guess I just wanted to say no. But we need to make sure that we're doing stuff in a, in a manner that for, that's best for our kids Well, we have a responsibility to them to keep them safe. To, to protect them, but we also have a responsibility not to provoke them, just to, just to be ornery, just to exercise our authority for no good reason. And finally, we need to raise our children in such a way that, that they, they grow up to love the Lord, that we're an example to them in everything that we do that they would know how to live, that they would know how to live and themselves grow up to be godly parents. There's a story of a, of a, of a child who, who was in school and it was, in a, it was a Bible study and, and the, the Bible study teacher, and it was his first time here, the Bible study teacher says, hey, I want all you kids to draw a picture of God. So all the kids were drawing and drawing. When it was all said and done, this one kid, his first time in the Bible study, comes up and, and she says, who's this? And he goes, well, this is a picture of my dad. He says, I don't know what God looks like, but I know what my dad looks like. And we need to be modeling that for our kids as well, because some, to some kids, God the Father will only be expressed in us. They're going to attribute how we behave to how God behaves. So we need to treat them in a godly manner, amen? And be an example to them and encourage them, show them that we love the Lord, but also encourage them to love the Lord themselves, to develop that relationship themselves. Then he goes on in Colossians 3, 22-24 to talk about our relationship with, with our employers and, and employees. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you are receiving the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now this this. Scripture, and particularly back then, is dealing with, with, with slaves, bond servants and, and their masters and slaves. But in today's world, this would fit exactly for us working in, just in the regular job market with the employees and with our employers. And this is, this is referring to all of us who go to work every day. And it says that we need to obey in everything those who are earthly masters. That means that when your boss tells you to do something... You should do it, and not, and not just because he's, he's, he's paying the bills. He's paying your, your check, which is a good enough reason on its own. I mean, if you decide to work somewhere, and you say, I, I agreed to, to work for you, to do these things for you, you agree to pay me. If they ask you to do something, well, that's what you agreed to. But even more so, do it in order to please God, because we should be setting an example for everybody around us. Because the truth is, is, much like when we were just talking about parenting, a, a parent's instruction is for the betterment of the, of the child. Your employee's instructions are typically for the betterment of their company as well. Now, I agree there's a bunch of, of foolish people out there, but the scripture doesn't say only obey wise masters, it says obey them all. Do what you're told. And the truth is, is we see that, I mean, you see that in Joseph's life as he was raised up and he was, he was in Potiphar's house and then he was in prison, everywhere he went, he just honored God and he found favor all the time. And it's strange because you're like, man, he's doing everything right. He's in Potiphar's house. Everything's going well. Matter of fact, he's so well liked. The Potiphar says that you, you can have everything in my household. You have full reign of everything, full control, except for my wife. You're like, man, that's pretty good going. He started in slavery, but I mean, he's doing all right now, right? And then Potiphar's wife gets a little crazy. And now all of a sudden he's thrown in prison again. And he didn't even do anything. You know, the thing was, is though, he, he wasn't behaving that way for anybody else but God. And from the way he was raised up. And even in doing good, he was put in a bad position. But God said, you know, don't be godly only to, to godly people or people doing the right thing. He said, you need to be to work godly to be godly in all situations. And in this case, it costs them something. And in our case, it might cost us something. Sometimes when you're doing godly things and working as under the Lord, it might cost you something. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen, that we shouldn't obey. The only time that, that you should be disobedient to your employer is if he's asking you to do something ungodly. But other than that, do, you know, we, we do it as under the Lord. We work heartily. And it says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. What it's saying is is we don't just look good when people are watching either. We should be good employees all the time. Even when people aren't around, we should be working hard and doing the right thing. Not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. How we work should not be based on who's in the room, but based on the character we have inside of us as a result of what's happened inside of us in Jesus Christ. And Then he says, "Whatever you do, work heartily, is for the Lord and not for, for men, because we know that when we work, we're doing it for God, not for man. We're not looking for approval from man, but we're doing it to be honoring to God." Amen. And he says, "Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, because you are serving the Lord, Christ." You know, you look at in in Joseph's case, he kept serving and kept getting thrown into worse and worse situations, but he says, "You know what? Keep serving." not as in men, not, not for hoping for favor from them, but because you're going to receive an inheritance. And we know the end of the story of Joseph, right? He receives the promise that God had given him, that, that he would have all of, all of his, uh, his family bow down to him. And he was raised that position. He was able to protect his family just because he was serving God and honoring God and not honoring the people he was working for. And the same thing goes for us. If we will honor God, he will honor us in everything that we do, amen? And our inheritance comes from him. And it goes on for employee, employers, Colossians 4.1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So it turns out that employees—I'm sorry, employers are supposed to behave like Christ as well. If you employ somebody, you need to make sure that you're honoring them and taking care of them. They're, bosses are supposed to lead in a Christ-like manner and treat those under you as God has treated you, which is with grace and forgiveness and love. And this can apply if you own your own business, or this can apply if you're just in leadership in business. Make sure you're leading in a godly manner. And as workers and as bosses, we need to realize that in in the business world, there there may seem to be a separation of duties. There may seem to be that some people are in a higher position than other people, but as far as God's concerned, we're all equal. We just talked a little while ago that there's no partiality in God. As far as God's concerned, we're all equal. And because of that, we need to treat each other like that. We're not better than anybody else. And even in an environment where there are clearly defined roles and there are clearly defined positions of leadership and, and teams that are, up, that are underneath them, we need to understand that, that we're to work together uh, and see people as Christ sees them. It's, like, it's why Paul said when he went to the Corinthian church, he said, I, I resolve to see nothing but Christ in you. And that's how we should see people. And how we should, should define all of our interactions. No matter if we're an employee or an employer, if we're a child or a parent, or if we're a husband or a wife, all of our interactions should be, should be defined about what, how Christ has, has, has made an impact in us. Amen? And then in Colossians 4, 2 through 4, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open us, to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is, which is how I ought to speak. We need to walk in wisdom towards outsiders as Christians as well. And when I, when I read this, look at this, it says we, need to, we need to, am I in the wrong place here? Sorry, I went one too far on my notes here. You'll forgive me, I hope. All right. <laughs> uh, we need to continue steadfastly in prayer as well. Paul instructs us as a Christians, we need to be in prayer. In other places in the Scripture, you've heard Paul say, pray without ceasing, right? That means at all times be in an attitude of prayer. And as I'm reading, this says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. And as I began to think about that, to be what does it mean to be watchful? in prayer. And I think it means to be alert in our prayer time. It means to be conscientious in our prayer time. In Matthew 6-7, Jesus says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. You know, when the Gentiles used to pray to their guards, they would just say stuff over and over and over and over and over and over. And over. And, over and, and I guess their, their goal was to wear out their God, so they finally just gave up and answered them. But they weren't really thinking about what they were saying. There was no heart in it. And I think, as Christians, that's what he's saying here: be watchful in your prayer, be conscientious in your prayer, know what's going on. Has anybody ever ever prayed and you and, and you be you be praying and you're maybe laying in bed and praying and next thing you know you're thinking about something that you have no idea how you got to where you were going. Man, I've been there. I think that's because we're not being watchful. We're just kind of getting into a rut. We're just doing it. You know, we're just getting into to, into the motions. And the next thing you know, when I mean, I've gotten to the point now where I, I pretty much usually force myself to pray out loud whenever I can because it helps me to maintain my eyes on Jesus, I pray to maintain my focus, to be alert, to be watchful. And also as I was, as I was reading this, I was reminded of, of this. Do you remember when Jesus was in the garden? And he brought the, the, uh, the disciples out with him. And in Matthew 26, 36-40, says, And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here. Watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? I think another aspect of being watchful when we're in prayer is to be aware of what's going on around us. I mean, Jesus probably wasn't much more than a stone's throw away from them. And He's obviously crying out to God. He's obviously distraught. He's obviously, I mean, we know, we know the story of what actually happened. He's so distraught, he's, he's, he's sweating blood. I mean, it's, it's, he's in a bad place. And he asked his disciples to stay awake and, and pray. And instead they felt, they weren't alert, they weren't watchful to what was going on. And I think we need to be that way as well. We need to be aware of what's going on. When we see somebody in need, we need to be, be, be sensitive to that and begin praying for them. We need to be aware of what's going on instead of just going through our daily stuff. When we pray, it shouldn't be one of those us-for-and-no-more no, no more mentalities. We need to be, be aware of what's going on in our church and our, our families around us and our city and our government and all those things. We need to be watchful and alert and praying for those things and be sensitive to those things. And then Paul says at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the world to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, Paul then begins to ask for prayer for himself. You know the truth is is that we should be praying for our leaders. You know our leaders need prayer. matter of fact, uh, most people that haven't been in leadership but don't know it don't really know what goes beyond the curtain. you know we were making <laughs> I was making jokes with one of the the other pastors at the church. I was talking about how, you know, I'm working full-time and then doing the church full-time. And he's like, what do you mean? You only work an hour and a half for the church on Sundays, right? That's all you do. And But that's, that's the mentality in a lot of people's eyes is that's all there is. There's two hours on Sunday and, and, and that's it. But the truth is, is there's a lot more that goes beyond the curtain. And your leaders need prayer for, for strength, encouragement to deal with some of the stuff that they have to deal with. So, just like Paul, I'd say, pray for me as well. Keep me in your prayers regularly, my wife and my family, because we need it. And then, the interesting thing I found this, though, is, is we get to see what his heart is about. He doesn't say, pray that I would be released from prison. He doesn't say, pray that my, my situation would be eased a little bit. You know, pray that they would, they would send me better food He's not looking for an easier time. He says, pray that God may open us a door. Even in prison, even in chains and shackles, and, and, and I don't know which prison he was in in this one, but I've read in certain commentaries that, that the prisons of those days, a lot of times, um, and it's probably the, the kind that he ended his life in, was, was, uh, it was like a hole in the ground with a bar, you know, somebody would lay on the hold, and there was a, a bar, and then somebody was stuck in that one on top of it, and then a bar, uh, a grate or whatever, and then they were on top of that, and they were just left in these to, to do whatever. It, it was bad to be the guy on the bottom, if you can imagine. But he wasn't asking for release from that kind of stuff. He said, you know what, just pray that God would open a door that I can minister the gospel. And he says, and on top of that, once the door is open, pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He says, you know what, pray the doors would be open and pray that I would be effective. You know, and, 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 and that's what I would ask, that you would guys pray for me too, that we would have opportunities to minister to different people, different areas in the city, and then not only that, that, that I would be effective at ministering the gospel, whether it means up here on a Sunday morning that I would be effective or, or out in my daily daily walk talking to other people. I want to be effective. And actually, the truth is, I pray the same thing for you guys as well. I pray that we would all have a spirit of boldness to speak out, that we would all be effective in ministering the gospel, that we would all have an impact in people's lives. If you guys have found that you've had more opportunity to share than you've ever had before, it's because I pray all the time that you would have the opportunity. And then I pray that you would not only have the opportunity, but that you would see it and that you would seize the opportunity as well. Because so many times we have plenty of opportunity and we just ignore it. Now Paul says we should walk in wisdom with outsiders. In Colossians 4, 5 through 6, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Walking in wisdom, and I think we have two different things here. One, we have walking and we have speech. So walking is the action part of our life. Walking in in wisdom means how we interact with people. And that means that we should always walk in such a way that it doesn't limit our ability to share the gospel with people. You guys know that you can walk in in such a way that you actually hinder the gospel from being shared with somebody. Whether you do it uh, with your interactions or they just see how you're living. Which is why as Christians, we need to make sure that we're not living like hypocrites. Because what people say is they, they look at us and they go, why would I want to be a Christian? Look at how they act. And how we walk when we're not walking in wisdom actually impacts our ability or somebody else's ability to share the gospel with somebody. This means that, that, that we walk as, as we ought to, as a light, as a city on a hill, a lamp on a lamp stem. Like I've told you before, whether you like it or not, as soon as you claim to be a Christian, you are shining. The question is, are you shining brightly or are you shining in a whole different way? I also believe this means that we need to walk in wisdom as, as, as in sharing the gospel as well. He says, Because he says walk in wisdom towards outsiders, but then he says make the best use of the time. I think that we have to be able to discern when we're wasting our breath. You know, there are some times that we're going to come up to people and we want to, to minister with them and they're just not going to have it. They're, they're not in a position to receive the gospel. Nothing you say is going to change that. And, and we can waste a row. We can debate for hours with somebody and not ever make a difference. So sometimes it would be better suited to be wise and instead take that time ministering to somebody that, whose heart that you can touch. Now, that doesn't mean we forget about that person that had a hardened heart. No, we continue praying for them that it would be soft, and we pray that maybe there was a seed there and somebody else can crack that wall later. But we need to be wise with our time. And then it also means, I believed when we walk in wisdom with outsiders, to meet them where they're at. First 1 Corinthians nine nineteen 19-23, it says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, and I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some and I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its bliss, in its blessings. You know, I think that's one of the ways we walk in wisdom as well. We need to be aware of where people are and meet them where they're at. And we need to understand that uh, that, that if they're not Christians, they're not going to act like Christians. And that means that... that that yeah, we can go into the to the prisons and minister to people there, meet them there, and we we're gonna have a we, we don't have the same expectation of people in that situation as we would in a people that are in a in a more affluent uh, area of town. We need to be wise in how we deal with people when we're trying to reach the youth. We probably don't want to come at them with the hymn book, right? And when we're trying to to reach the adults in town, we probably don't want to come at them with some Christian rappers. We're just talking, we have a friend of ours, he used to go by Squeaky G, he changed his name to Will Speaks now, but he's a Christian rapper, and it uh, turns out he, he actually owes me a concert, so I could can, I can probably bring him down here at any time, but I, I wonder how, you know, how effective that'll be. There may be a time as our youth group grows, we use it to reach the youth, but it's not going to save everybody else in town, so we need to be wise in how we walk with outsiders. And then he goes on to say, let your speech always be gracious. And grace is, is, is giving something that isn't deserved, right? The grace of God is because we were given a brand new life. We were given a son, even though we didn't deserve it. So that means when we speak graciously, that means that, that even if somebody doesn't deserve it, we speak to them with love. We encourage them. We lift them up. And that's having gracious speech, being loving and patient. Sometimes people don't deserve us to be patient, but, but that's gracious speech, right? And then it says, let it be gracious, and then seasoned with salt. And that, what that means to be seasoned with salt means to have a purpose, to be effective. You know, I mean, if, if, if you've ever sat down and, and you've had a, a, a really good steak that's been seasoned perfectly, it just hits the spot. And you want more of that steak. And it's the same thing with speech. If you have speech that's seasoned perfectly and it's hitting the spot, they're going to want to hear more of that. They're going to be pulled in. They're going to be drawn in. It's going to be effective at ministering in their life. But if your speech is the opposite of being seasoned with salt, if it's bland, if it's boring, if it has no impact, they're not going to want to hear what you have to say. So we want our speech to be effective and seasoned with salt. Amen? And he said, and as a result, that we may know how we ought to answer each person. The Amplified Bible uh, translates it like this. It says, let your speech at all times be gracious, pleasant, and winsome, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may never be at a loss to know how you ought to answer anyone who puts a question to you. You know, if, if we will be prepared always to have gracious and, and speech seasoned with salt, we are be prepared to answer any question asked of us and make an impact in their lives. Amen? In Colossians 4, 7 through 9... We're going to begin to see Paul getting ready to wind down the letter. He's closing out here. And it says, Tychicus will tell you all about, this is Colossians 4, 7-9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So now we have Paul, he's sitting in prison, he's not in a good place, and even then he's sending people out for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Tychicus, or Tychicus or however this is pronounced, he's mentioned multiple times by Paul in the gospel. And uh, we don't know a whole lot about, actually probably this is the, the most we know about him, even in all his letters, even though Paul mentions him several times, is that he is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. We also know that he's the one that delivered the letter to the Ephesians. And I, I was looking at this, if, you, if, you, if I talked about earlier the, the parallels in Ephesians and Colossians, I wonder uh, if these weren't even written at the same time and sent out at the same time. Because the wording, not only does it parallel, as sometimes the wording, at least how it's translated, is almost exact when it's talking about husbands and wives and, and, and kids and their parents. And I wonder if they weren't written... You know, on the same day or a couple of days apart, and gave him to Tychicus, and he went and delivered the letters to the Ephesians, and then headed down to Colossae to deliver this letter as well. And then he talks about Onesimus. He says, "Our faithful and beloved brother. This is the slave that was talked about in Philemon." And 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 what we know about him is in. Philemon 1.16, it says he's no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So this was the one, if you remember the story of Philemon, and I would encourage you to read it, but basically, this slave ran away, got saved, was ministering to Paul, and Paul said, you know what, I'm sending him back to you. I would rather him stay with me, I could use his help, but I want to send him back to you that you can honor him as a brother. And he says, and if he owes you anything for running away, charge it to my account. And he says, you know what, I could just keep them, actually, because you owe me even your life in the Lord. I could just keep them. But I'm going to send them back to you because I want to do the right thing as well. But that's who this guy is. And he's, he's, he's out there, and he's with them. And they, they send Onesimus and Tychicus back to Colossae. He's sending people out. And I'm thinking about this. I'm like, man, Paul's in prison. He probably has a great need for these people to be around, to minister to him, to encourage him. And instead, he sends them out to do the work of the gospel. And I believe that as we continue to grow in the body and as as we grow, the truth is the church should always be a place that is sending people out. You know, there's always great joy in seeing the kingdom of God increase, but I think as Christians we always have a part of sorrow as we send people away to do the work of the ministry. And Paul is showing us heart here. He's like, you know what? I'm gonna, even though I could use them, I'm gonna send them out. Just like when we were sent out from the Tucson church, you know, we were missed. And just like when we send people out from this church, they're gonna be missed and it's gonna be sorry, but we're gonna send them out because they got they got work to do. Amen. And then in Colossians 14 through 13, he says Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark the cut. Why can't they all be named like that? I can read Mark. Hierapolis. So Epaphras is the, is the guy who actually went to Paul for this whole letter. He's the whole reason this letter exists. And he says, and he, says he struggles. Do you remember we talked about a couple of weeks how Paul struggled for them? That there was a real concern. And Epaphras had that same heart. He struggles for them to be mature, for them to grow. Matter of fact, he, he struggled so much for them that he walked however long it took to get to this city, to get Paul to send them a letter so that they could, be, they could, be, they could grow, that they could learn. And this guy I cared about him. And he's there with Paul now. And then in Colossians 4, 14-17, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. We all know who Luke is. He wrote the, you know, the book of Luke. It makes sense. And give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. That's an interesting one. It says to Nympha and to the church in her house. Absolutely. You know, there's, a, there's an idea in some circles that women have no business in leadership in the church. They don't have any rights in the church. They shouldn't be teaching. They shouldn't be doing all these things. And there's some even reading the commentaries on this that, in many translations, this has been translated to a male name. So the question is, well, which one's right—the male, or, the male, or the female version of this name? Was this a woman or was this a man? But if you if you read people that are that are that, that know about these things, they said if a, if a scribe was going to change the name, particularly in those days they would change the name from a woman to a man. Nobody would change a man's name to a woman because that just wasn't a society back then. So we can be pretty sure that this was a, a female pastor of this church. And, uh, you know, and I personally, I believe that God's, in, God's a God of order and structure and the pattern that he has laid out, even we talked about in Husband and Wives, is that is that the, the men should be leading in these roles. Uh, but that doesn't mean that women can't. Matter of fact, there are so many times in the, in the, in the New Testament that women have, have uh, positions of high standing in the church. Matter of fact, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, you ever know, you know when they talk about Priscilla and Aquila? Priscilla's name is always mentioned first. And as a result, we, we know that she was probably the one that had the ministry at, at, at that time. And this is a female pastor. And obviously, Paul's okay with that because he's saying, hey, give my greetings to her. Now, I don't know what the situation though. I don't know if there wasn't a, a, a man worth his salt that would stand up and do the, the job that God had commanded him to do. But I thank God that she did if nobody else would. And the truth is, is that, you know, and even Paul said, you know, I, I won't allow a woman to teach me. He wasn't saying the woman can't teach me. He was saying, you know what, I'm going to step into my role that God has called me into. And, and I believe that's what he's saying there. And I, I think that's the, the same thing for all of us. is We need to step into the roles that we're called to, what we're supposed to do. But if anybody ever says that a woman can't preach or a woman can't teach, that's nonsense. And it's ridiculous. And I believe if you just spend any time in Scripture, you see it over and over again. And then we got here. He says, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Sometimes I read this stuff and I begin to think about it. I'm like, I wonder what's happening here. I wonder if this is an encouragement or if this is a rebuke. I wonder if this is like, dude, heard what you've been doing. See that you fulfill your ministry. Or like, hey, heard what you've been doing. Go ahead and see that you fulfill your ministry. You see the difference? I wonder how that, what is actually going on here. But either way, I think that it's, it's a, a good commandment for all of us. Make sure that we're fulfilling our ministry in Christ. Amen? And then he goes on. We're going to finish here, the last verse. and Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains... Grace be with you. There's so much going on here. He says, remember my chains. And I think about this and I'm like, remember my chains. What is he talking about? Is it because Paul wants pity? Is it because uh, because he wants people to just feel bad for him because he's in prison? And I don't think that's what it is. Paul's not like, you know, remember me, pray for me. I, I think what he's saying is is that, you know what? I'm an apostle, I'm a leader, I'm a, I'm a man in high standing in the church, but even still, I'm willing to do everything that it takes to minister this gospel of mine, even if it means being in change. He's basically saying, you know what, it's worth it. Remember my change, because it's, it's worth it. I'm willing to do this for the kingdom of God, and, and, and I hope that you're willing to give up everything as well. You know, as we started the service, we're talking about the... the uh, the, the, the conference that we just had and oh man I'm tired and I'm exhausted and I, I and we don't say those things to 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 get pity but the reality is, is there's part of it is you know what it was worth it I had to take time off from work and give up my my paid time off to to go to this and and we went from eight o'clock in the morning to like nine ten o'clock every night and I was tired but it was worth it and then we just did this, we just did this outreach on, for Easter as well. I just kept going, didn't stop at the conference, and we did the Easter. And, and, and we worked all day long, and we did all kinds of stuff, and, and it was tiring. And Hector's out there, he can barely move when he's done, and his legs up on the stand because his ankle's hurting, because it turns out he broke it six months ago and just didn't know it. And, but I bet you can tell you it was worth it. And, and Jan was out there, but it, she's like, man, what time is it? It's hot. I'm, I'm, the heat's starting to affect me. It's, it's, I'm even getting a little bit dizzy. But you know what? I bet she said it was worth it. Because serving God is worth it. No matter what we go through, no matter what sacrifice that we give, whether it means that that we just go nonstop and we're tired, or it means that we're all the way down in chains. And ultimately, Paul gave his life for the gospel. And I bet he would say it was worth it. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, because it's worth it. Peace be to you. You know, I hope if we've gone as we've gone through this book of Colossians that 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 you've been challenged. I know I've been challenged, even even writing it. I was telling Pastor Rick that when I write stuff, I like it because I'll be going through and I'll see stuff I've never seen before. And and sometimes I'm like, oh, I got to write this message. And I don't want to get up and get going, but then I get into it and I'm like, this is good stuff, God. <laughs> I'm my, I mean, this is good. this is really good, God. I'm writing my notes down. And. Uh, and I get something out of it. And I hope that as we've gone through this, we're all getting something out of this. That we've all been challenged. Because the truth is, this city of Colossae, it looks a whole lot like what our, our cities look like today. An intermingling of religions and stuff trying to water down the gospel, water down Christianity, or offer alternate solutions. But the truth is, the gospel is the only way. Jesus is the only name that's above all other names. He's the only answer, the only path unto salvation. And we have to make sure that we're not letting that get watered down in this society as well. Because as we've heard, Jesus plus anything is nothing. But Jesus plus nothing is everything. So let's just go away from this, not letting this, this book just be an intellectual story that we have in our heads. But instead, let's let it challenge us. Let it, let it impact our lives. Let's think about these instructions and these things and let it make a difference in how we walk our lives as Christians and how we're a light shining in the world. Amen.